Let me start this morning. I want to take you, I'm going to cover a lot of stuff really fast. I want to start with a guy named George Mason. I'm going to have slides up here. George Mason was one of the 55 guys who wrote the Constitution of the United States, but he's one of the 16 guys who did not sign it because he said, we really need to put some greater limits around the federal government. None of us think it's going to get that big, but it may someday. And because of that, we need to make sure people's liberties are protected. So he's the guy who started pushing for the Bill of Rights. He's known as the father of the Bill of Rights. Significant thing about George Mason is he was a really deep thinker and he thought on the basis of principles. And that's what I'm going to talk about this morning is principles. We have a tendency as Americans to have a lot of standards for how we judge things. Principles should be the thing that we look at most. Principles are things that don't change. I was in Ukraine not, not long ago. They wanted to do a new constitution, so they asked me to come over and help them with that. And I was over there and I was talking to their law schools and their government schools and all their young people and their parliament and, and said, guys, I can tell you all about the American documents, but you don't want American documents. What you want is the principles that made the American documents work. You want those principles. And I, and I just showed them. I said, look, there's a lot of principles that are thousands of years old, like the principle of gravity. Principle of gravity never changes. We still use that principle today, but we have new technology we apply to it. The reason we can fly planes today is because we understand Newton's laws of motions, particularly the second law of motion. When Newton came up with that law of motion, he didn't discover anything. He just identified a principle God had put there. But because he did, we now can fly. The same with laws of interplanetary motion by Kepler. Those are what we use to be able to travel to the moon as we celebrated this weekend. Or now we're going to Mars. Kepler never thought anybody would leave the face of the earth. Never imagined that. But we use technology to add to principles. And so what happens today is Americans really don't think on the basis of principles much anymore. We look at what we have in the way of technology or opportunities, etc. We need to go back to principles. And that's where George Mason is so good. So George Mason, of all the things that he did, he, he penned the original Constitution of Virginia in May of 1776, before we wrote the Declaration, he had written that Constitution. And in that Constitution, this is a statement he made. He said, no free government or the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people but by a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. Now, that frequent recurrence to fundamental principles, that's the basis of our liberty. And that's what I want to emphasize is what are, what are those fundamental principles that we, we should go to? And, every, and, and I deal with thousands of elected officials. There's about 7,500 elected officials in the United States. There's about 4,000 in the network we have, about 1,000 active. And if I ask those legislators, I don't think 5% of, of them can tell me the fundamental principles in which America was founded. As a matter of fact, we're doing a huge national poll right now just to be elected officials. And I'm going to bet that 90% can't tell me what the Bill of Rights is because that's just that's national stats. Only one out of 1,000 Americans right now can tell me the five freedoms listed in the First Amendment. One out of 1,000. So it, we just know so little about our fundamental principles, and that's what I want to spend time on. So George Mason, in doing this, what he's articulated is something that we understand in a lot of areas. We're right now in the middle of baseball season. Uh, we're about to start football season. We finished basketball season, hockey season. And if you look at the MVP of any sport, the MVP in every sport is someone who does the fundamentals better than anyone else. They don't do new things. They do the old things better. As a matter of fact, if you take something like spring training, all pro, pro bat baseball now, the guys in spring training, they're the best players in the world for baseball. And all they do is do the fundamentals. They go back to throwing and hitting and pitching and fielding and catching. And the guys who can do the fundamentals the best are the ones who are the best in that sport. And so that's what I want to focus on is those fundamental principles. Now, having said that, 
I want to point out something that we have that we take for granted as Americans. I think we take a lot more for granted than any other than, than people in any other nation in the world. I want to go to a, a, a statement from the Bible in Proverbs 10:22. It says, "The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and He adds no sorrow to it." From that verse, we find that God's blessing is something that enriches our life. It's something that that really blesses our life, lifts us up. And Dr. Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration of Independence, considered one of the three most notable founding fathers. John Adams put him up there with Ben Franklin and George Washington. Benjamin Rush is the third. One of the top guys, he's an evangelical Christian. This guy started the first Bible Society in America, started the first Sunday School movement. And I have a lot of his original writings. We're blessed to own about 120,000 writings from before 1812. And so I have his prayer journal. And in his prayer journal, he goes through, and in his memoirs, he's, he's trying to be a good Christian and thank God for all the blessings he's enjoyed. And so he goes through and lists all these blessings, and he wants to be thankful and grateful. And one of the blessings he listed, he says, I thank God for all the times I have not fallen downstairs. <laughs> what? See, I just came upstairs and I didn't fall, and that's a blessing. Nobody noticed it. If I'd fallen, you would have noticed that. That would not have been a blessing. It's like when we take our car and go somewhere, we get back home, we didn't have a wreck, we don't think about it. The blessing was we didn't have a wreck. If you had a wreck, you notice it. So a lot of the things that we never even notice are some of the biggest blessings we have. We don't notice our health until something happens to it. We don't notice our family until something happens. So many things we take for granted are massively, and it's that way with the United States. If you look at where we are as a people, we are one of 195 nations in the world. Uh, the UN this year has 195 nations. We're just one of 195. They've all got some form of government. We got our form of government. The difference is when you look at what we have, our form of government, and compare it with every other nation in the world, look how often other nations have revolutions and new governments. We are stable in a way that is, we just take it for granted. We think stability is natural in a government. Stability is not natural in a government. This is like falling down the stairs. Everybody else falls down the stairs. We haven't fallen down the stairs. And we don't notice that because we're always going up and down the stairs. So when you look at all the instability that is there in the rest of the world, do you know what the average length of a constitution in the history of the world is? In the history of the world, 5,500 years according to history, the average constitution lasts 17 years. We have lasted 243 years under the same piece of paper. Now. We don't think about that. We just had another 4th of July. Let's go to the lake. Let's have fireworks. Great. But everybody, I was in Poland uh, last year with the congressional delegation. We took congressmen to Poland, working on some things there in Poland with military. And in doing so, I, I talked to people in Poland that they, those people I talked to, they have lived through seven constitutions in their lifetime, people that I talked to. If you're a baby boomer in South Korea, and South Korea is considered to be a stable nation, but if you're a baby boomer in South Korea, you have lived through six constitutions. I mean, this is worse, what we think of as stable nations. We just take what we have for granted. The same thing when you get to things like creativity. Uh, there's a lot of ways to measure creativity. You can use patent, uh, patents and copyrights and international copyright patent protection. There's lots of ways to measure. But America has 4% of the world's population. And every year we produce more medical cures, more technology, more scientific inventions, more plays, more discoveries. We produce more music, more everything than the other 96% of the world combined. Now here's the deal. 4% of the world's population should produce 4% of the world's whatever. Our 4% produces more than the other 96% and we do that every year. Again, when I was, I was in Europe last year, went over to Germany working on some military stuff in Germany. 
While I was there, I got to stay at a five-star hotel. And for a cowboy from Texas, that's high living. You know, a five-star hotel. Staying at a five-star hotel in Germany was really fun, except it would have been really nice if they'd had internet at that hotel. I got to point out, Motel 6 here has internet. You know, I'm looking for a five-star hotel there to have internet. Again, we're just so used to what we have. The technology we have, we take it for granted. It's not there for the rest of the world. Same with our productivity. Uh, our 4% of the world's population, we produce 25% of the world's gross domestic product. And we don't produce more because we have more because that's not the case. We don't have greater natural resources in so many areas. Being a cowboy, that puts me in the agricultural community. Agriculture is 1% of America's GDP, just America's GDP. And yet, America, every year, our farmers and ranchers produce enough food to feed the entire world every year just out of America. And America is only 66 in the world in percentage of farmable land. There are 65 nations who have a greater percentage of farmable land than we do. And we take what we have at 66 and make it outproduce the rest of the world. It's unbelievable what we have. And so, what we have is known as American exceptionalism. Now, this is a term that was given to us in 1831 by Lexington de Tocqueville and by many other foreigners who came here and looked at it and said, I've never seen anything like this. Our, our country sure doesn't have this. This is exceptional. So today, exceptionalism, a lot of professors don't like it. They write books called The Myth of American Exceptionalism. I wrote a book a couple of years ago talking about how America is unique. It brought the professors out of the woodwork and they just, you know, just hate that term. It's not a matter of cocky arrogance. To say that we're exceptional means we're the exception, we're not the rule. That's not something to brag about, that's just a statement of fact. We, we don't have a revolution. The, the average nation not only has a constitution every 17 years, the average nation has a violent revolution every generation or so. We haven't done that. So we're exceptional. The fact that we can outproduce others makes us, we're the exception, not the rule. So when you look at that, how did we, how did we get to that point of exceptionalism? I mean, where, where, where'd this thing come from? And it comes from, I want to give you a definition we're going to work with to talk about the principles that made us different. Because if we cannot preserve the principles that made us different, we won't be able to preserve the nation. I would say we all agree that we're in a culture war of some degree. We can fight the culture war, but if we don't remember why we're fighting and the principles we're to use when fighting it, we won't even know what to do when we win or how to secure what we've lost. So, how to retake what we've lost is a better way to say it. So, let me take you to the definition we're going to use. Professors don't like the definition. They, they, they all give their own definition. One professor says, the reason America is not exceptional is we didn't win the Vietnam War. That's what your measurement for national exceptionalism is. Another one says, well, we're not exceptional because we have the same rate of immigration every other nation has. If we were... I mean, they, they give these definitions that nobody else can possibly meet, and that way they can talk bad about America. So the definition we're going to use is American exceptionalism is what describes the unprecedented stability, freedom, and prosperity that's the result of institutions and policies that are produced by unique governing philosophy. Now, that's what makes us different. That's why we are exceptional. But notice a sequence here. We have a governing philosophy, and that governing philosophy is what produces our institutions and policies. And that's what eventually produces the unprecedented freedom and stability and prosperity that we enjoy. Which means the key part to this is the governing philosophy. Because that's where everything comes from, is that governing philosophy. Um, to explain this, let me take you back to 8th grade earth science. In 8th grade earth science, we learned all about the fruit tree. And we learned the fruit tree had three aspects or three stages to it. The first is what you plant in the ground. It's that seed 
or that seedling that you put there, and then it starts to grow and develop underneath where you can't see it. It has this the system of roots that takes off. And so that's the first part. And then once that gets established, then it starts growing upward. And that growing upward, you get the trunk and you get the branches and the, the infrastructure, if you will. And once you get that, then you start producing the fruit up top. So the fruit up top is the result of what you plant in the ground. So the most important thing is what you plant in the ground from which everything else grows. Everybody loves the fruit, and that's what they want to pick. Everybody wants an apple tree or a pear tree or whatever. It's all based on what, you're, what you plant in the ground. And so what we plant in the ground, that's the, the philosophy of government. Every, every country, every nation has a seed that they planted. It's that philosophy. From that philosophy is what grows their infrastructure. Their institutions and their policies, what they do comes from their philosophy of government. Whether it's Russia, whether it's Iran, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Germany, whether it's Great Britain, it all flows from what they planted. It flows from their philosophy of government. And then based on that is where you get the fruit. And, and that's the stuff we all enjoy. So, you know, everybody wants the fruit that America has, except they don't want to plant the same seed we have. So, we, we love apple trees. Well, if you do, if you love apples on a tree, don't plant a lemon seed because you're not going to get apples on a tree. And so, what happens is a lot of nations like what we have, but they want to use a different philosophy to get there. They want to plant something that's not going to produce what they want. So, the most important part actually becomes that philosophy right there. It's the seed that we plant. Most Americans today cannot identify the seed that we planted that has produced what we all enjoy because we all like the fruit, but it's all contingent on that seed. And if we change the seed and decide, you know, we're going to rip that seed out and plant another seed, you're going to get different fruit. You won't get the same fruit if you, if you change the seed. So let's look at that seed. What is the philosophy that produced American exceptionalism? The good news for us is that our founding fathers were very prolific writers. They wrote everything down. They have, Washington has 100 volumes of writings. Franklin has 60. Madison has 60. Jefferson has 100. I mean, these guys wrote everything down. And they wanted the world to know what their philosophy was. And so they told us. In the Declaration of Independence, there's 126 words that give the five principles of American government. Those five principles is what every American should know. If you know this, then you have a measurement by which you know whether what government is doing, what military is doing, what economics is doing. You have a measure to know whether they're on track or not. But if you don't know what those principles are, then whatever seems like a good idea at the time is what we, we buy into and accept. And this, by the way, is, is one of the things that we spend virtually all summer taking uh, young people, 18 to 25 years old, two weeks at a time, uh, college kids going into college or in postgraduate work in college. And they don't have a clue why they believe what they believe about their faith, and they don't have a clue why they believe what they believe about their country. We screen the kids, and we only take kids who have Christian values. But I will tell you that those kids invariably are pro-socialistic. They are very liberal. They tend to be very liberal. All the things that will not keep us surviving, because it's a whole different system, but they don't know that. They don't understand that. They don't know what the principles are. So we'll spend that two weeks, and what we see at the end of those two weeks, and we've seen this for years and years, every session we have kids go back, and just by showing them the apologetics of, of America, why we are different, how we can be different, how this can work for any nation that wants to plant the same seeds, we have watched them every session go back and change their professors. And we get reports from them every session on how that I ask my I asked my professor a series of questions. Because, see, we teach them how to ask questions. Do you know Jesus asked 300 questions in the Gospels? Jesus didn't answer many questions, but he asked a lot. 
And by asking questions is where you can change the way people think. You don't have to give them answers. We love to give answers. No, just ask questions. See, what we do the first two days that we have those young people is we do nothing but ask them questions about what they believe. And they get boxed in where they can't defend what they believe. And they don't know why they believe. It's just what they believe, and they can't defend it. So after about two days of showing them that you really don't know what you believe, we can go through and start saying, here's stuff you might want to consider. Here's, and, and ask us questions about this. And so what you do is you put them in that thinking mode. In America, since the 1930s, we have been training our young people to learn, not to think. And so as learners, we're very indoctrinatable. In other words, whatever I tell you, you're going to learn that. That's why what we see in the media, that's why what's on the internet, that's why what Wikipedia says, those are all primary sources because we're learners. We should be thinkers, not learners. And so this is what this goes back to. If you understand the principles and become a thinker and see how this works, you can replicate this anywhere, in any nation, at any point in time, any level of government. So those five principles, let's go through them. Here's, the way, here's what those 126 words say. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands with to, which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station which the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. In other words, we have a moral responsibility to tell the whole world why we're doing what we're doing and on what basis we're doing it. So we're declaring to mankind everything about why we're doing this. And so they continue. They, they've gone through these words and they say, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now that's 126 words. Those 126 words, they set forth five principles. Now, let's take with the first principle they set forth. I'm just going to pull phrases out here in the same order they appeared in that declaration they made to the rest of the world and why they're doing what they're doing. The first thing they talk about is the laws of nature and nature's God. Now, that's not a phrase that means a whole lot to us today. If you're a thinker, it means a whole lot to you. And I'll get to that in just a minute. But the laws of nature and nature's God, that eight-word phrase, that tells us, and it told everyone back then, that there is a fixed standard for moral rights and wrongs. Now, this is really big today. And this is one of the biggest problems America faces, one of the biggest problems we're going to have to overcome to turn this thing around, is that right now in America today, two out of three Americans believe that there is no absolute moral truth. Now, this is a problem. If two out of three Americans can't agree on what's right and wrong, you can't keep a nation surviving and you can't guide a nation. There has to be rights and wrongs around which the majority of people agree, otherwise you can't have laws that work. I'll pick and choose my laws. I'll pick and choose what I want to enforce. I'll pick and choose what I want to do with immigration, what I want to do with gender. I'll pick and choose what I want to do with an economic system. If two out of three can't agree there are certain things that are absolutely right and absolutely wrong, you get serious problems in the nation. No nation's ever survived that. Here's where it gets worse. Two out of three Christians believe there's no absolute moral truth. And the next generation coming up, four out of five millennials believe there's no absolute moral truth. Millennials are the next generation of everything. They're the next generation of, of doctors and physicians and surgeons and pastors and teachers and political leaders and athletes, and four out of five think there is no absolute moral right and wrong. Well, what happens is we said there is an absolute moral right and wrong. It's the laws of nature and nature's God. And by the way, once you understand that there are moral rights and wrongs, then you know what truth is. See, after they said there's the laws of nature and nature's God, they then say we hold these truths to be separate. You can't have truth if you don't know what rights and wrongs are. 
And so rights and wrongs have to precede truth. And so the moral ambiguity we have right now is a real problem, which is why truth can be anything you want it to be, gender-wise or anything else. You choose your own truth. Whatever you want to be is truth, that's fine. You can't do that. You can't survive. So let me go back and show you what they did here. That phrase, the laws of nature, nature's God, it came out of the most famous law book of that day. It came from Blackstone's commentaries on the law. Blackstone and his commentaries in that law book, and everybody, every American knew it back then. Thomas Jefferson said Americans read Blackstone's commentaries like Muslims read the Koran. We all knew what he did. It's a four-volume set. In volume one, chapter two, he talks about the nature of laws in general. And in talking about the nature of laws, he, he, he talked about this. He said, this is the dual revelation of God. God has revealed Himself in two ways. Number one, He's revealed Himself through creation, through what He's made. You know, it's a striking verse to me in, in Romans 1.20. The Bible says, everything that can be known about God, including the intricacies of the Godhead, have been revealed through what God has created so that even the heathen are without excuse. So people say, oh, you Christians, you say you have a loving God. Well, what are you going to do for all those people who never heard the gospel? I'm going to do what Paul said. Even the increases of the Godhead have been revealed through creation so that nobody has an excuse not to know God. The problem is we don't spend enough time in creation. Uh, and, and by the way, I'll point out uh, Psalm 4610 says, uh, be still, know that I'm God. People in the country, there's a whole lot less atheists in the country than there are in the city. The closer you are to God's creation, the more you see what He does. And what happens if you start studying that from that standpoint, it will revolutionize your life. I, I can literally take you to my ranch in Texas. I can show you an anthill, and on the basis of that anthill, I can tell you how the federal budget should work on the basis of that anthill. <laughs> now, I can also take you to Proverbs 6 and show you how it should work, but on the basis of that, I don't need the scriptures. I can show you that anthill. I was out spraying pasture last year and was spraying a whole patch of thistles. And then suddenly when I sprayed the thistles, I had, I had a new epiphany of what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 25. I mean, it's just when I get out and, and pay attention to what's around me, you start seeing all this truth. And now, but see, the problem is because, as Blackstone pointed out, God's put it all out there in nature. But when we send and our thinking was changed by sin, it wasn't so clear for us anymore. And so God said, let me just write it down for you, easiest way. And so that's what we call the Scriptures, or that's the laws of nature's God, or that's the laws of the God who created nature. That's the Scriptures. So between creation and the Scriptures, what we have is a standard for right and wrong. Now, it's fun, and I, I like doing this because this is what we teach the young people to do, is think about things for a while. Just, we're going to use our minds. So what we're going to do is we're just going to use the laws of nature and look at what nature teaches us about certain things, rights and wrongs. For example, self-defense. Now, I can go to the Bible. I can go to Exodus 22.2 and tell you I have a right of self-defense. I can go over to, um, the, to Nehemiah, show you two passages. I can go to Luke, I can show you another passage. I can show you all these passages in the Bible. I have the right to defend myself. I do not need the Bible to prove that. I have the laws of nature that prove that. Now, I told you I was a cowboy from Texas, so I like this. I like riding. I like the lifestyle. I like being outside. It's a very different lifestyle. We'll end up in places on our horses. People wonder how in the world did you get there. But being in the country is a very different lifestyle, and I really like it. It's rough and rugged. Um, it's very dangerous at times. As a matter of fact, we're coming down off a cliff here, and it's our, our guy's already below the cliff. We're headed down to where he is. But on this particular trip, as we were doing work on this trip, here's a, a short little video of we were riding a, along a trail, and it's okay until we take a left here. And when we took a left, my right-hand stirrup was about 400 feet off the ground below me. 
we're just riding a sheer cliff on the face of that. Now, the problem with that is if my horse does something stupid, we're both going to die. Just real simple. If, if, it, if it whirls, if it flinches, if it... And so, as a result, we'd spend a lot of time with our horses to make sure we got a good relationship with them. I want to know how they think. They want to know how I think. They know what to expect of me. I know what to expect of them. If I say swim the river, they got to swim the river. If I say stick your nose over the edge of that cliff and go down that goat trail, they got to do it. If they don't, we, we both die. So, as a result, we put a lot of money into feed. We put a lot of money into vets. We have them a great place to stay in a barn. And it works really well generally. We had a mare that we used a lot on the trail. And she had a little foal. And when she had that foal, we went in to check on her, and she chased us out of the barn with teeth bared coming at us. Always before, we've had a great relationship. Not now. Because God put it in her nature that you don't get close to my kids. I will defend my kids. You see, what you find in the laws of nature is God has put in the laws of everything is created that you will defend your own life, you will defend the life of your family, and you will defend your property. See, she chased us out of that barn thinking that's her home. We built it. We put it there for her. But she thinks it's hers. So she chased us out of there because that's the law of self-defense. You have the same thing that goes, we raise sheep as well. And, and so one winter, we had this, this ewe, you know, full wool and it's winter time. And we had a little kitten. That kitten, for whatever reason, liked that ewe. And at nighttime when that ewe would bed down, that little kitten would go crawl under her wool and lay there. And it was a really cute thing that, that went on. And it worked really well until that you had a pair of twins. And when she had that pair of twins in the spring, that little kitten went out that night to, to crawl under her and be warm. And that you just stomped her into the ground. Now, it didn't kill the cat, but it's don't mess with my kids. You know, I don't care what kind of relationship with it. It's something that God has put in the nature of what he's made. So if it's a law of nature, a law of Congress won't change that. Congress can pass all the laws they want that say ewes are not allowed to stomp on kittens, and it won't make a bit of difference to that ewe. She's going to do it anyway. You can pass all the laws you want that said mares shouldn't bite their owners. You can pass that. It's not going to make any difference to that mare. So a law of nature is something that God has put there, and you're not going to change it by passing a law. Therefore, it is an eternal right and wrong. So you have that with self-defense. Uh, other things you can point to is liberty. There are 10 million known species in nature, not a single one enslaves another species. Up to about 10 or 12 years ago, they used to say, well, there are two species of ant. One enslaves the other. And now they come back and said, no, really, no, it's a symbiotic relationship. They both help each other. There's not a single instance of slavery anywhere in nature. So, God, I, I could have used Luke 1, Luke 4, I could have used um, Isaiah 61, don't need to. I just point to nature. Slavery violates all the laws of nature as well as the laws of nature's God. I can do the same thing with things like abortion. 10 million species in nature, there's not a single species that kills its young while it's still in the womb. Not a single one. I don't need the Bible verses to tell me that that's wrong. The laws of nature tell me that that's wrong. I have the same thing with homosexuality. 10 million species in nature. There's only a half a dozen or so where there are instances of homosexuality, but it's never a lifestyle anywhere in nature, ever. There's no alternative lifestyle in nature. It's a, it's a violation of the laws of nature. So I don't need 1 Corinthians 6. I don't need Leviticus. I don't need all those passages. I've got the laws of nature. If I get to transgender, and this is the new flavor of the month. This is what people are, are really kind of focused on right now, is let me go back to cowboy stuff for a little bit. We, we did a roundup, and these are the Badlands in North Dakota. Badlands in North Dakota, and, and all along, you see where those trees are down along the creek bottoms? These cattle see people about once a year. They're wild as deer, 
And so trying to round up cattle there in those badlands is like trying to round up deer. They just, they, they see you and they run. And so what we'll do is we'll try to drive them up on top of the mesas. And once we get them on top of the mesas, get them out of those creek bottoms, we start to round up. And so we had about 1,200 cattle we're driving across the top of the mesa. And what we do is we drive them into a pen up top. We get all those cattle put in that pen up top. And the reason we do that is we want to see the calves because the calves have been born over the last year. That's what we want to check on. There's eight different diseases that will kill cattle. So we want to make sure they get vaccinations. We want to ear tag them so we know what ranch they go to because they were out running wild. And so we do all that. And the way we do it is we send the cowboy into the pen. He'll rope a calf like this guy's just on here. He's got the back leg of that calf. We'll drag that calf out of there one calf at a time. And there'll be four or five of us to get ready to drop on that calf. I'm the one in the blue plaid shirt right in the middle. So once they get that calf on the ground, I'll drop down on top of that calf. And I'll start giving injections, giving it these vaccinations that they need. Now, interesting thing about this, on the left side, that's a cowgirl from one of the local ranches. On the right side is a cowboy from one of the local ranches. We handled 580 calves in that roundup. Had 1,200 cows, 580 calves. Interesting thing about it, cowboys, cowgirls, nobody had any difficulty telling the gender of the calves on which we were working. I mean, you can look at that picture and tell whether you got a male or a female. It's real simple. There is no confusion in nature about genders at all. There's only two genders in nature. As a matter of fact, God tells us in the Scriptures four times that God made them male and female. So I've got the laws of nature, and I've got the laws of nature's God that tell me there's only two genders. Now, if you don't know, there are 92 legally recognized genders in America today. On your Facebook profile, you can choose from 74 genders for what you are. For, for 5,500 years of recorded history, in the world, if you wanted to know what gender you were, you looked between your legs. Now you look between your ears. You know, it's crazy. It's up here, it tells me what my gender is. No, that violates the laws of nature, nature's God. There are absolute rights and wrongs, and they come from the laws of nature, nature's God. Continue with that. In addition, transgender property, from the time you're born, you come into the earth. Every species will stake out what it considers to be its own territory, its own property. When it dies, somebody else is going to get it. When we die, it'll go to the kids or the state or whatever. But while they're alive, they will have their property. In the same way, you look at accumulation profit, and nobody says, Mr. Squirrel, you've accumulated way too many acorns. You need to share them with everybody else. <laughs> Never happens. In nature, you can accumulate and keep as much as you want. That, that by the way, Nature teaches you what we would call the free market system, the, the competition and the ability to make profit. And some make more than others, and some squirrels put away more than others, and some beavers put away more than others, and some mountain lions bury more meat than others. That's part of what happens in nature. So you've got accumulation profit, you have association. Uh, if I'm a black Angus and want to hang with the white Charolais, I can, I can do that. If I want to hang with the red center Gertrudis, that's fine. If I want to hang with the brown Gerseys, that's okay. If I want to hang with the black and white Holsteins, that's okay. I get to choose my herd. As a matter of fact, if I want to hang with the goats, I can. Or if I want to hang with the elk, I can hang with whoever I want to. Today we're saying, oh, you're a baker from Colorado? Here's who you're going to hang with, Jack Phillips. Here's what you're going to... See, we're now telling people who they have to associate with and who they have to choose. That's not part of the laws of nature and nature's God. So we have all these rights and wrongs that are there. We also have theft. Now this is where it gets interesting because I will tell you that when I feed my four horses, none of them eat their own food. They all steal it from the other horses. So nobody goes to their own food. The same thing with adultery. Monogamy is not common in nature. Uh, that's why every herd has one bull and 20 cows in the herd because monogamy is not common. The same with incest. This is why most cowboys 
when they're doing ranch work, don't ride Mustangs. Mustangs can be fun, and there's some good Mustangs, but generally doing ranch work, they aren't big enough, they aren't strong enough. They've been inbred for too many generations, you know, fathers and, and, and daughters and mothers and sons, and so they're just not what you want. And the same thing with murder. If you've ever seen what a skunk does inside a hen house, they don't go in there to eat food and kill chickens. They go in there to bite their heads off, and then they pick the body up and sling it. And it, just, it looks like a mass murder site, and it is. It's a mass, that's what skunks do. So if you're saying that the laws of nature and nature's God tells us what's right and wrong, then what do you do with that stuff there? This is where Blackstone said, now remember, because we don't always see the way it's supposed to be, God wrote it down for us. And so that's the laws of nature's God. And that's why Ten Commandments, things like that say, well, don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit murder. Between the laws of nature and the laws of nature's God, we have a very comprehensive guide on what makes right and wrong. In the, in the Constitution, we recognize that as the common law. That's the Seventh Amendment of the Constitution. But here's the problem we have with Christians and absolute moral rights and wrongs. is only 14% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis, and only 10% of Christians have a biblical worldview. I don't like the word Christian anymore. I try not to use it. I prefer to use the word biblical because most Christians aren't biblical right now. Perfect example. Do you know that 92% of the members of Congress are professing Christians? The policies that come out of Congress, are they very biblical? No. So being Christian doesn't mean you're biblical. And there's a big difference between it. Being biblical is what makes the difference. But Christians are not spending time in the Word, which is why two out of three don't know that there's absolute moral rights and wrongs. And uh, we found that only one out of 500 Christians could tell us what the Ten Commandments were. One out of 500 Christians. That's not very good for even knowing rights and wrongs, the moral law. So this is the first point that the, the founders made is uh, the laws of nature, nature's God establishes a basis for truth. And once you have a, a fixed set of morals of rights and wrongs, now you can run a nation and now you can move to the next point. And the second point they gave, they said all men are cre created equal, they're endowed by the Creator. So what we get here is the open acknowledgement that there is a Creator. Now I've been involved in eight cases of the U.S. Supreme Court and in those cases they all dealt with religious liberties and the court said, well, you know, we got people in America who don't believe in God, we got atheists and others. And so we the government can't take a position between God and anti-God. We got to be neutral on this. That's not the way we were founded. Because what they did, they said, this is the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator. So they said, hey world, listen up. We're telling you that every government in America, we believe there is a Creator God. Now, significant to have that open acknowledgement. We can't be neutral. We're not ambivalent on this. We believe there is a God because that is the first step in limiting government. You see, the reason is, is governments too often tend to think that they are God. And a secular government believes it is God. And it'll tell you what your rights are and what you can and can't have. And they change from generation to generation. So what we did was we acknowledged to all governments in America, there is a power higher than you. Government, you're not the highest power in our lives. God is the highest power in our lives. You come next below God, but God's first. So that's a way to limit government. You've already told government there's certain things you can't do because you're not God in our lives and you don't get the final word in our lives. I love the way that George Washington dealt with this. On the day that we finished the Bill of Rights, uh, the, the first 10 amendments of the Constitution that George Mason had advocated for limiting government, on the day that we finished that he called the, the nation to a time of acknowledging God, openly acknowledging God. He did so in this document here. It's a document we own. He explained why he did so here. And look at his words. He said, the reason we're doing this, he says, it is the duty. And notice the word duty. 
Duty means a legally binding contractual obligation. That's their definition. It is the legally binding contractual obligation of all nations, not of individuals. Nations, political entities have a legally binding contractual obligation to do four things. According to George Washington, what do political entities have a legally binding contractual obligation to do? Number one is to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Number two, to obey His will. Number three, to be grateful for His benefit. Number four, humbly to implore His protection and favor. That is the duty of nations. So nations aren't supposed to be ambivalent. That's not the American belief. We aren't ambivalent in whether there's a God or not. We take an affirmative position there is a God and that we have a duty to obey His will, to acknowledge Him, be grateful for what He gives us, and humbly to implore His aid and assistance. So we're not ambivalent as that where we say, well, religion and non-religion are, are equal. As a matter of fact, we won a case at the Supreme Court three weeks ago that has rolled back 50 years of bad Supreme Court decisions. Now, the trickle-down effect for you guys, you will see it over the next three to five years. You'll be able to do things in public with religion that you've never been able to do in your lifetime. It goes back... That decision, because we have justices appointed to the court, and particularly the two new justices by Trump, voted for this, that we're going back to the fact that it's okay for government to acknowledge God. It's okay for us publicly to have acknowledgments of God. It's okay for us to do that. So, that's the second position that we have in, in the documents is one, there's an absolute set of moral rights and wrongs that come from God, and that's the basis of truth. Two is we believe that there is a Creator God and we openly acknowledge that. Number three, the Declaration says they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Now this is the belief that there are a certain set of rights that come only from God. And actually this is a second step in limiting government because this establishes jurisdiction. Let me see if I can explain it a different way. The ranch we've got out in Texas, uh, I happen to have a red pickup. I like my red pickup. I've had several generations of red pickups. Everybody ought to have a red pickup. <laughs> My son, Tim, however, has a different viewpoint. He has a black pickup. So when he came to the ranch last week and parked his pickup, I promptly spray painted it red because everybody <laughs> needs a red pickup. Actually, I didn't spray paint it red. Might have wanted to. How come I didn't spray paint it red? Because it doesn't belong to me. See, anything that belongs to me, I can spray paint red. I can spray paint my roads red, I can spray paint my pastures red, I can spray paint my house red, anything that belongs to me I can spray paint red. See, what we did here is say, hey government, there's a certain set of rights you can't spray paint red. They didn't come from you, they don't belong to you, and you can't put your mark on them. So what we did was we said there are a certain, this is limiting jurisdiction, this is another way of limiting government, is government there's certain things you cannot even touch. You can't even look at these. Now, they're inalienable rights, and inalienable is a, is a term that we don't use a whole lot today, so let me, let me use the definition by the guys who actually wrote that term. For example, if I go to John Dickinson, he's the guy who not only helped write the Constitution, or helped do the Declaration, he's a signer of the Constitution. He said, an inalienable right is a right which God gave to you and which no inferior power has a right to take away. In other words, if God told you you can do it, not county, not state, not federal government can tell you you can't. If it came to you from God, nobody can say you can't do that. You have the same thing with Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton said, inalienable rights are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They're written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by any mortal power. 
These are rights that come from God and nobody can interfere with them. I love the way John Adams said it. John Adams said that inalienable rights are antecedent to all earthly governments. They're rights that cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws. They're rights derived from the great legislator of the universe. Now, he said inalienable rights are antecedent to all earthly governments. Antecedent means came before. So, he said inalienable rights came before there was ever an earthly government. So, in either secular history or religious history, doesn't matter, in 5,500 years of history, what is the first ever recorded civil government? And that's important because inalienable rights came before there was ever an earthly government. Before you ever had a civil government, you had inalienable rights. So, if I want to know what came before, I need to know where first government started. And if you look either, again, in biblical history or in profane history, secular history, you get the same answer. And it is what's called the Noahide Laws. After Noah got off the ark, seven laws were there from Noah that set up, here's what happens with murder, here's what's happened with theft, here's what, and it went through. It's the first code of civil laws ever given in the history of the world, ever. 5,500 years recorded history. Well, that's Genesis 9 in the Bible. And John Adams said that inalienable rights came before first earthly government, which means inalienable rights came in Genesis 1 through 8. And in Genesis 1 through 8, the Founding Fathers identified roughly two dozen inalienable rights that came from God before there was ever earthly government. These are rights that God gave to you just because you're human. Just because you're a person, you have these rights. They didn't come from government. They came before government ever existed, before Noah ever had that code of laws, the Noahide laws. These are rights that God already given to every human individual. So, when you say, all right, what are those rights? Well, this is what the Founding Fathers identified. They studied it. Sam Adams, for example, Sam Adams who is the father of the American Revolution, he said, well, in the Declaration we told you that among other rights there was first a right to life, secondly to liberty, thirdly to property. So, there's three of them right there. Then, 11 years later they said, hey, uh, we've now won the Revolution, we have a Constitution, and George Mason's convinced us we need a Bill of Rights. And so, we told you that in the Declaration among others there were three. Well, here's some of the others. And so, the First Amendment gives you five more rights, like the right to worship God according to the states of conscience. The Second Amendment gives you two more inalienable rights, the right to defend yourself individually, the right to defend yourself collectively. The Third Amendment gives you another inalienable God-given right, the right to the sanctity of your home. The Fourth or the Eighth Amendments give you another eight or nine rights. They all deal with legal process, due process, things like Jesus said in, in John 8, 12, things like Proverbs 18, 17. So, you get all these inalienable rights, and so by the time you go through the entire Bill of Rights, You've got about 16, 17 rights. You've got three in the Declaration of Independence. That gives you about 20 inalienable rights that are identified, and they had about two dozen other rights that didn't show in the documents. They talked about the inalienable right to expatriation. Expatriation is the right to move freely between the states. That's a God-given right, just like I can move freely in the forest, and I can go from one mountain to another as an animal. We have that right to move freely, and now we're seeing California says, whoa, 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 whoa. Georgia just passed a law protecting unborn children. We're not going to let anybody from California that works for the government travel to Georgia. We ban travel to Georgia. We now have six states that have banned travel to nine other states. That violates the right of expatriation. We as Americans have a right to move freely between all 50 states, and we can do that. So, these are all inalienable rights, and, and that's the kind of stuff the Founding Fathers laid out. So, inalienable rights, that's the, that's the third point is that there's a set of rights that come from God and government. You can't spray paint these red. You cannot touch these. Then the fourth point that they made in the Declaration is that to secure these rights, which rights? Inalienable rights. That to secure inalienable rights is why governments are instituted among men. 
So we now find the primary purpose of civil government is not to protect the borders, it's not to make sure we have a good economy, it's not to make sure we have jobs. Primary purpose of government is to make sure you have the right to do all the things God told you you have the right to do. So that's the first thing that government in America is supposed to do. That's why you have limited government. This is why you have maximum individual freedom. Now, I can't do everything that's licentious. I can't do anything I want to because I have the laws of nature and nature's God that, defend, that defines what's right and wrong. But within the boundaries of the laws of nature and nature's God, I have the right to do all of these rights that God has given me. Uh, the Founding Father said, now understand, if you think your inalienable right causes you to violate somebody else's inalienable right, you don't have that right. You know, my, my right to worship God according to dictates and conscience does not allow me to have human sacrifices. I may think it does, it's not going to happen. God does not allow my inalienable right to take someone else's inalienable right to life, which is why the right of the mother to choose an abortion, no, you can't take the inalienable right of a child. That life of the child is given by God. Your inalienable right doesn't trump her inalienable right or his inalienable right. So this is the way we understood inalienable rights. And that's how we had limits on anybody defining, self-identifying what their rights were. Well, this is my right. This is what I believe. Okay, but does it fit within the laws of nature and nature's God? And so that was the boundary around which everything organized. So this is the first, fourth point is that governments exist to protect inalienable rights. Um, James Wilson, who was a signer of the Declaration and the Constitution, one of only six founding fathers who did that, he started the first law school in America. George Washington put him on the Supreme Court, original justice. He was the second most active member of the Constitutional Convention. Washington has him on the court. And while he's sitting on the court, he started the first law school in America. And while he's sitting on the court, he teaches the first law school. I actually have his, his original law books, his, his first law books. And he says, students, you need to understand why we had the American Revolution. And so he explains to them. He said, the principal object of government was to acquire a new security for the possession of those rights which we were previously entitled by the immediate gift of our all-wise and all-beneficent Creator. Huh? What did you just say? Here's the deal. He said, as British citizens, we used to have inalienable rights. We had the Magna Carta, we had the British Bill of Rights, and then King George III comes along, and King George III says, whoa, you don't have the right to worship God according to the States and Conscience. We have a nice state-established Anglican Church in Great Britain and you're all going to be Anglicans, and if you're not, you're going to jail. And William Penn spent eight months in jail because he went to a Quaker church rather than an Anglican church. And all these things were happening, and you know, suddenly the, the, the king says, I'm going to send an Anglican bishop to America, and you're all going to be Anglicans. And of course, the Congregationalists and the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Baptists said, you're going to do what? You're not going to make me that. I chose my religion. I'm, I'm going to be a Baptist. I'm going to be Catholic, whatever. You, you're not going to make me an Anglican. So that was a violation of animal rights. And then the right to defend ourselves, the king says, no, 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 no. Only my soldiers need guns. None of you need guns. And so he sent them to Williamsburg to get all the guns and all the ammunition for Williamsburg in Virginia. He sent them out to Concord and Lexington. And they said, no, 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 we have a right to self-defense. That's a God-given right to self-defense. And so he said, we used to have all these inalienable rights, and the king violated it. So he said, in order to have a new security for the possession of those rights that we used to have, that's why we created a new government. See, the purpose we brought America into existence was we went back to say, no, we need to have a government that protects inalienable rights. And that's what we're doing in the American Revolution. Because we don't get the right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience anymore, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what he's explaining. Uh, you have Sam Adams who made the same point. Sam Adams says that the government was originally designed for the preservation of inalienable rights. And by the way, we mentioned the fact that the first government was Noah's government, that Noahide laws. And first government, he said, was originally designed for the preservation of animal rights. 
That's true, because the first law that Noah is given in Genesis 9-6 says, whoever sheds man's blood, whoever commits murder, by man will his blood be shed. In other words, if you commit murder, we're going to take you out. Capital punishment. What is that law for? It's to protect the inalienable right to life. You have the right to life of everyone else. And if you take someone else's inalienable right to life, government's going to take you out. That's why the second law dealt with theft, because you have an inalienable right to private property. And if you steal somebody else's private property, we're going to deal with you. So you see, all the laws given in Noahide laws were to protect inalienable rights. That's why government was originally established. That's why God gave Noah those seven laws. So we believe that. Now, here's what I find interesting. Remember, he said government was, was designed to protect inalienable rights. He said, first is a right to life, secondly to liberty, thirdly to property. Right to life. Wouldn't that be cool if they had been talking about abortion back in that day? Because then we could go into court and argue original intent. Oh, the founding fathers, they didn't want abortion. Of course, we can't do that because that was not their intent. I mean, this is unfortunately, it's, wait a minute. Hopefully, you didn't buy what I just said. <laughs> There's nothing new about abortion except the technology with which we do it. See, there's a reason that back in Deuteronomy and Leviticus 3,500 years ago, God specifically told them not to harm an unborn child. And here's the penalty if you do. Why would He put that in law unless people were doing it back then? See, as long as there are people who are pregnant, there are people who do not want to be pregnant, and they found ways to abort their child, whether it's physical means, whether it was chemical means, whether it's potions or inducements or whatever else. And God says, no, 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 you, you don't take an unborn life. So, this was not a new issue in America. They specifically were talking about abortion. As a matter of fact, here's one of the books we own on abortion. You see 1808, Abortion in America. I can show you Thomas Jefferson passed a law prohibiting abortion in Virginia back in the day. So, this was an issue they dealt with. So, when they talk about right to life, they literally mean right to life. Matter of fact, if I go back to James Wilson's law books, he talked to the students about this particular inalienable right. He said, students, he said, with consistency, Beautiful and undeviating, human life from its commencement to its close is protected by the common law. Remember the Seventh Amendment, laws of nature, nature's God. He says, in the contemplation of law, life begins when the infant is first able to stir in the womb, and by the law that life is protected. Now, here's the deal. As soon as you know there's life in the womb, at that point civil law kicks in to protect the life that's in the womb. But here's where technology comes in. Back then, how long did it take you to know for sure that you're really pregnant? First trimester, three months maybe. How long today? We know within eight days of fertilization that you're pregnant today. The point is, as soon as you know, as soon as you know there's life in there, at that point, the law kicks in to protect that life because law is to protect the inalienable right to life. So, the technology is all that's changed. The position has not changed. Their position to protect life as soon as you know it was in the womb, to protect life, that's what they had. And, and so, this, this is their belief. I love the way that John Witherspoon dealt with this. He's founding father, signed the declaration. He's the president of Princeton University. And lecture to the students, he told the students, he says, kids, there's a big difference between America and Europe. He said, here in America, we believe that God gives life to children. In Europe, they believe that parents give life to children. Which is why in Europe they allow abortions over there. They allow parents to kill their children because they think that parents are the ones who gave life to children. We know better. We know that life comes from God, which is why we don't do abortions in America. 
This is what he told, and he explained that the class, I love this, this way he summed it up. He said, a perfect right in a state of natural liberty is the right to life. He said, here in America, we've denied the power of life and death to parents. We know that life comes from God. It doesn't come from parents. We don't let parents take the life of an unborn child. See, this is what we knew. And so, that, and, and so when they talked about right to life, they, they literally meant that. But nonetheless, that goes back to government supposed to protect inalienable rights. That's the fourth thing that we said about our government. And the fifth thing that we said of the five principles is that it says governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Consent of the governed, we often call that the will of the majority. Uh, George Washington explained it this way. George Washington said, the fundamental principles of our Constitution require that the will of the majority shall prevail. Majority wins. You also have Thomas Jefferson on the other political party said the same thing. He said, the will of the majority, the natural law of every society is the only sure guardian of the rights of man. So they both agreed, majority wins. Now, there's always going to be majorities and minorities for every person, and I don't mean according to your, to your gender or your race or anything else. Every one of us will at certain times be in winning positions and in losing positions. I mean, I've voted for a lot of candidates who didn't win, so I was in the minority a lot of times. I've been in minority a lot of times on, on legislation I wanted or what should happen even in my own family. I get outvoted at times. So we have this concept that the majority wins, which is why, by the way, the Founding Fathers never allowed filibusters at all. Filibusters that we used came in in 1972 the way we have it now, and that 1972 filibuster says, you know what, 59 votes is, excuse me, says 41 votes is much more powerful than 59 votes. See, in the Senate today, 40 votes will beat 60 votes every time because of the filibuster. It's supposed to be 51 beats 49 but not the way we have, which is why the Senate gets so little done today. It's why they have not passed a budget now in 13 years because they can't get 60 votes. You got Republicans with 52 votes or whatever it is and Democrats with 48. You can't get 60 votes. Nobody agrees with anything. So we no longer have the will of the majority ruling, which is why we can't get Planned Parenthood defunded. We can't get a lot of stuff done because we can't get 60 votes on it. And people say, well, Republicans have the majority. Why don't they do anything? Because they're stuck with a vote that we got from Woodrow Wilson in 1913 called Rule 22 that says the, the filibuster is what we're going to do, and we amended that in the 1970s to make it what we have now. You just can't trump that. You're just not going to win. And it's wrong. It should not be there. It violates one of the fundamental principles. So this fifth principle, the consent of the government, let me take you through these principles again, just, just to summarize as we're finishing up. The first principle is there is a fixed moral law that establishes absolute truth. The second principle, there's a divine creator. The third principle, inalienable rights come from that creator. The fourth principle, government exists to protect inalienable rights. And the fifth principle is the consent of the governed. Now, Matt point out to you that majority rule is number five in the list. There's four things that come higher. Why is it number five in the list? Because we don't have a vote on moral rights and wrongs. Let's have a vote on whether rape should be a crime or not. We have a vote, and the people decided 92 to 8 percent that rape is no longer a crime. Doesn't matter what the people decided. It violates the laws of nature, and nature's God. There is a moral law higher than the vote. See, that's why the moral law goes first. We don't get to vote on morals. Uh, let, let's vote on whether marriage should be between a man and a woman. No, God's already decided that. We, we don't vote on that. that that's His. So that was the way that it originally was. That's why we never had these votes until the courts got involved in marriage about 15 years ago. And then we had 32 states that had marriage amendments because they felt like they needed to defend what God had done. 
but it all came from the fact that we lost rights and wrongs, and the court's going to tell us what our rights and wrongs are. So, we have that. But the second thing is, notice that you can't vote on inalienable rights either. Inalienable rights come above the will of the majority. Let's have a vote on whether you can defend yourself. No, I don't need to vote on that. God told me I have an inalienable right to defend myself. Let's have a vote like the Equality Act right now in Congress. Let's have a vote on whether you can practice your faith in public. No, I don't need that vote. God's already told me I can. So, that's why the consent of, of the governed comes last. It's number five. In the, so, if you can't vote on morals, and if you can't vote on, on animal rights, what do you vote on? You vote on whether the sidewalk should be four feet wide, five feet wide, or six feet wide. You can vote on whether the speed limit should be 45, 55, or if you're in Texas, 75, our speed limit. You can vote on all sorts of things like that. You can't vote on those other issues. See, this is the way government was founded. This is the way it was established. This is what made us unique was this jurisdictional understanding. And this is why I'll point out to you that a secular government will never be a limited government. You cannot find a secular government in the world right now that's limited. Germany certainly is not, because Germany, if you homeschool your kids, you will be thrown in jail, which the case is going over there right now, because Germany says, no, no, kids belong to the state. They don't belong to parents. You can raise them, but you have to raise them according to what we in the state want, which is why in Scotland, from the time your child is born in Scotland, there will be a government official at the hospital to register your child who will then make all the major decisions regarding that child's life for the rest of the time. Same with health care. The state will decide what health care you need. See, you take any secular state, you take Italy, you, you take what's going in France. By the way, you can't share the gospel openly in France. It's called proselytization. As a Christian, you'll end up in jail, even in France. So, take not just Muslim nations, take the, you just take any secular nation. There are not limitations. You, you sure can't say the Scandinavian nations because they got a tax rate of 68%. Tell me that's limited government when they're taking two out of three dollars of everything you make. So, the only chance you have behind a limited government is for it not to be secular, which is why of those five points the founders made, four out of the five were God-centered. There's nothing secular when four out of your five. Now, there was a sixth point they made after this in the Declaration that says, if your government does not provide what God ordained that government should, you have a right to alter, to abolish, to reform, or to make a new government. That is actually the sixth principle. The only time you can have a new government is if it's not doing the five things God said the government should do. But these are the five principles on, on which we were founded. I'll close down with these couple of quotes. Thomas Jefferson, uh, a quote he made, it's in the first book he ever wrote, 1781. It's engraved in stone inside the Jefferson Memorial. In that book that he wrote in 1781, this is what Jefferson said. And by the way, we know that Jefferson is one of the least religious founding fathers. He's one of the five least religious out of 250 founding fathers. Most people today can name the least religious. They can't name the others. If I start saying who's George Wythe and who's Roger Sherman and who's, um, who's Francis Hopkinson and who's Charles Carroll, and I go through all these other names, nobody knows them. If I say who's Franklin and who's Jefferson and who's Thomas Paine, everybody will know those guys. It's interesting, we've been trained to recognize the least religious. We don't have a clue who the others are. So, we take the one to two percent and make them look like they're the majority. But even having said that, if I grant you that Jefferson is one of the least religious, which is what today they claim, I want you to see the statement he made, which is engraved in stone inside the Jefferson Memorial. He said, can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed their only firm basis? Now, according to Thomas Jefferson, what's the only firm basis for a nation's liberties? He said, it is a conviction, notice the word conviction, he said, it is a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are of the gift of God, that they are not to be violated but with His wrath. He said, indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that His justice won't sleep forever. 
I would challenge you to find many Christians who would make that statement. See, I would challenge you that Jefferson has a lot more Christian beliefs and practices than most Christians today do. But we don't, you know, again, that's a different discussion. But may I point out that Jefferson said, guys, the only way you have national liberties is to have a conviction in your mind that these liberties come from God. And if you start screwing around with them, you're going to tick him off and then we're all going to be in trouble. I mean, this is Jefferson's belief on it, which is why keeping God-centered mentality in the nation is so significant. Who cares if we have under God in the Pledge of Allegiance? I care because when you stop being God conscious, it changes your behavior. When you stop thinking about God, it puts government in control of things rather than God in control. You see, those, those things are not little things. They are big, big things. You know, the, the, all the stuff with the national anthem, that's all big stuff because that's all God stuff. And the national anthem is where we get our motto. And this be our motto is God and our trust, verse 4 of the national anthem. That's God stuff, and it's really big stuff. So that's what I wanted you to see about this. And by the way, if this is new to you, I would encourage you to get the book we have called The Jefferson Lies. There's so much there that we have misportrayed about these guys. Uh, in the same way, these five principles, you really need to know them. Um, they come from a, a thing called exceptional, and so you're welcome to grab that. But please learn those five principles. Please base what you do. Judge what you do. Take the measurements of what happens at local, county, state, and federal. Look at the elections that you have and decide where people are on those five issues. And I'll give you just one example. When they said first is a right to life, that's the first of all inalienable rights, I will tell you, and, and I, I held political office for nine years. I have recruited hundreds of people for office. I've run presidential campaign stuff. I've, I've, re, I've trained thousands of people for office. If you will tell me where any candidate is or any, I, I don't know that this is senators from Colorado, and a lot of you aren't from Colorado. I don't know your senators here, but I'll do this. If you will tell me where your senator is on the life issue with a 90% degree of certainty, I will tell you how they vote on climate change. I'll tell you how they vote on the capital gains tax. I'll tell you what they do with the small arms treaty. I'll tell you where they are on the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. See, I'll know their worldview on how they view everything based on how they handle life. Life is the first of the inalienable rights. And if you don't get that one right, you won't get second, third, fourth. If they're wrong on life, they'll be wrong on the, the right to keep and bear arms. If they're wrong on life, they'll be wrong on whether you have the right to mention God in public or whether a kid can say God at graduation. If they're wrong on life, they'll be wrong on private property, which includes money and the taxes we pay. Just You tell me where they're on life. I can tell you just about everywhere else. And I'll be wrong on a couple issues, but 90% of them I'll get right. And that's just that this, because once you're off the interstate, you're off the interstate until you get back on it. I mean, it's just real simple. So life is the issue. So when it comes time to vote, the number one thing you ought to check on is where are they on life? Well, they're so good on economics and infrastructure. Yeah, but if they're wrong on life, they won't be good on economics and infrastructure once they get in office. So just go with life is the issue. That is the first of all enable rights. So those five principles, if you can learn those and just those, it'll make a big difference.